Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for uh, joining us on this, uh, well, it's actually a beautiful day, but it's after a snowy day. Uh, welcome to the 2019 Charles Neuhauser Memorial Lecture at Harvard University. My name is Michael Sony. I am the director of uh, Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. The Neuhauser Lecture was established uh, more than 30 years ago uh, thanks to the generosity of uh, Paul Neuhauser, class of 55, uh, and his wife, Mary. Um, we were hoping they would join us today, but they have been impacted by the weather, and they are, they are on their way from, from Florida, and we hope they'll get here uh, um, at least in time to uh, join us for the reception that will be held immediately after today's lecture in the uh, common room down the hall uh, on your right. Um, the Neuhauser Lecture Series is a memorial to Paul's brother, uh, Charles Neuhauser, class of 53. Charlie, as he was known, was an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency from 1958 to 1981. From 1966 to 1967, he was a visitor at the Fairbank Center's predecessor, uh, the Center for East Asian Research uh, at Harvard. Uh, the task that Charlie set for himself during his uh, year here uh, at the Fairbank Center was to integrate uh, insight from the intelligence community, much of which, of course, he was not allowed to share with the colleagues that he was working with, uh, together with the research that was being done by colleagues here at Harvard. Uh, his purpose was to understand uh, what had caused the scarring event, the Cultural Revolution, to tear through uh, Maoist China. Charlie's efforts to combine government service with scholarship to bridge the gap between the policymaking world and the world of the university became the focus of this memorial lecture, uh, which has ever since um, uh, involved, uh, uh, featured distinguished speakers who have in one way or another sought to bridge that divide. Professor Rod McFarker, who was director of the center at that time, was instrumental in the establishment of the series. Rod, like Charlie, had a career that transcended the academy, serving as both a journalist and a member of parliament before coming to Harvard. Rod's ability to see the benefits of multiple viewpoints, as well as his understanding that universities can't exist in isolation if they are to be centers of knowledge, ensured that this lecture series, uh, with the support of the Neuhauser family, would become an annual fixture on our Fairbank Center calendar. Uh, as most of you know, Rod passed away uh, last month at the age of 89. We are uh, indebted to Rod for his leadership, uh, for his contribution to both this series and the larger world of China studies. He's sorely missed. Uh, I'm uh, very grateful to his wife, Delena, to join, who's for joining us here today. Uh, I'm let me now turn to today's speaker. I'm very pleased to welcome the 2019 Charles Neuhauser uh, Memorial Lecture, uh, someone who perfectly embodies the uh, aim of the series to bridge the scholar-practitioner gap. Susan Thornton is former Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs at the US Department of State. In 2018, she retired from a distinguished 28-year career focusing primarily on East and Central Asia. Her career included serving under 10 secretaries of state, uh, which seems like a lot, but to be transparent, three of them were in the last 18 months 
uh, of her time, of her time, of her time in office. <laughs> she had overseas postings in uh, Central Asia, Russian, the Caucasus, and China. She uh, is a speaker of Chinese, uh, of Russian, and of French. She received her MA in International Relations and Soviet Studies from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in 1991, and an MS in National Strategy and Resource Management at the National Defense University's Eisenhower School in 2010. Uh, since her retirement, she has been, uh, op she's been a farmer, <laughs> uh, operating a, a, a small farm in Maine, but also a senior fellow at Yale's, Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. In a period of increasing tensions between the United States and China, for that matter, a period of unusually public tensions over China policy within the administration, at a time when the goals and the practices of US international engagement and leadership in general, and specifically with respect to China, are being questioned in government, in the, in the academy, and among the public at large, uh, we feel or we felt that Susan Thornton's experience and her expertise, her invaluable insight into today's geopolitical realities make her the ideal speaker for this year's Charles Neuhauser Memorial Lecture. Please join me in welcoming today's distinguished speaker. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you very much, Michael, for that very generous and warm introduction and um, to remind us about the lions of the China field that have gone before us. Of course, um, Rod McFarquhar. And I worked with Rory McFarquhar when he was in the Obama administration. So wonderful to have you with us and have everyone else that managed to get out through the slush and snow. I did have to drive down through a snowstorm this morning to get here, and I'm very impressed to see everybody here this afternoon. So I, I thank you very much for being here. Um, and I'm also so honored and humbled to join the list of illustrious predecessors that have given speeches at this venue, many of whom are my mentors and people that I so much look up to. And so I hope that they are not going to be horrified by the provocative talk that I've prepared for you this afternoon. But I thought I have to do something to wake everybody up in the afternoon on a gray day like this. So um, bear with me. Uh, the talk is titled, provocatively, I think, Can We Live With China? And um, you know, people told me when I was coming onto the sort of senior fellow circuit, as it were, that you, know, you have to give your talk a kind of provocative title so you get a lot of people in the audience. But I think, <laughs> I think you know, the, the question of can we live with China is just so preposterous that I, I was hoping that it would elicit a reaction among people. And then Mark Grady, who I also want to reach out to uh, and thank for all of his help in getting me here today, um, you know, sent me a, uh, is there a subtitle for your talk? And I was in the middle of a multitasking disaster at the moment, and so he needed it right away to make the poster. And so I came up with this overly ambitious <laughs> subtitle, which is The Roadmap to Coevolution, which um, 
I will try to do a little bit of justice to such a grand undertaking, but I, of course, am not going to have all the answers. And um, you know, after 28 years in the State Department and in the U.S. government, I am I am nothing if not very humble about about the level of knowledge I bring to all of these subjects and the um, depth of expertise that I bring. I'm a generalist, and um, I very much loved my work because of that. But um, I am just now embarking on the task of joining the academy at the Yale China Law Center. And um, I'm still mystified by much of what I find around me in academia, so I'm learning. But uh, I, I mostly wanted to focus this talk today on what the US should be doing um, about China and about our policy toward China. Um, you know, I think we are at a new stage in US-China relations, and um, we've probably been at that point, actually, for almost a decade now. Um, you can't read an article or a report now on China without being told that the US needs to have a new strategy for China. Um, I often think maybe it would be good just to have a strategy, but um, I think, you know, this is the place where most of us should be focusing our energy. I know that there's a lot of interest in thinking and talking about, you know, who lost China, why we didn't get China right, you know, is China really changing, is China opening, is China closing? I mean, I personally want to spend more of my time thinking about what the U.S. is doing and what it's doing right or wrong and what it should be doing to take care of U.S. interests in this relationship over the long term. That's what, as a diplomat, I was charged with for 28 years. Um, that's where I come at it from. I know a lot of people like to talk um, you know, about what's happening inside China and you know, is China changing? I focus more on sort of what does all of this mean for U.S. interests in the long term. And I think if our policymakers are doing their job, we've heard a lot about U.S. interests under this administration, but that is not anything new. That is what we do. We, we serve the American people, and we try to get progress for U.S. interests. Um, since there's been all this talk about needing a new strategy for China, I've been pretty surprised at how few people have actually tried to outline what such a strategy might look like in any specific terms. Um, you know, many people are now saying that the old strategy, the effort to bind China into the international system, failed, which I don't think is true. But few have really articulated any kind of realistic and compelling ideas about what should be done. And I think that this vacuum of ideas is, frankly, a function of our current U.S. domestic politics. Um, but in just the last few weeks, you know, I have been heartened um, by seeing a few pieces from people, uh, Doug Paul at the Carnegie Endowment, Andrew Erickson at the Naval War College, uh, Zach Cooper and Hal Brands uh, from SICE and AEI, trying to get into this space of what should we do? Where should we go from here? What should our strategy or our policy look like? Um, and I tip my hat to these people because they really are touching on sacred cows and 
examining the detritus of past history in an effort to come up with some thoughtful suggestions. Uh, they seem to acknowledge that a Cold War frame is unsuitable, as the US and China need to cooperate as well as compete, and China is now fully integrated into the global economy. Uh, Erickson's competitive coexistence and the Brands Cooper collective pressure focus mainly on security competition, uh, whereas Doug Paul's prescription for, quote, combining engagement with the nurturing of a balance of power around Beijing as a hedge, unquote, sounds actually pretty familiar. Um, and I actually think it sounds pretty reasonable. But um, you know, it, there's a lot of what we've been doing in that. And I think this is really hard because um, the US doesn't have a clear objective or even set of objectives of what we want to get out of this relationship. I think it's very hard to have a strategy when you don't know what you want. Um, for more than 200 years, I think the US has mainly seen China as an opportunity. Our focus has always been on opening China up, uh, bringing it into the community of nations as Richard Nixon famously said. And uh, this has been done with enormous benefits for both China and the United States. And it has changed both countries and the world, I think. Uh, but now we seem to be in the US floundering and reactive. Uh, some people say we want further market opening and reform in China. Some people say we should close our doors to China because it seeks to displace or replace us in the US. Some say we should gather a coalition to contain China, that we're in an ideological struggle for global influence. Uh, some say it doesn't matter what we want. We're headed for inevitable conflict. And of course, these are caricatures of various people's positions. But you get the point. There's no clear American consensus on what we want from China. And even if there is a growing consensus that China is the greatest long-term threat to America. That's something we've heard repeatedly now from several parts of uh, the current administration, greatest long-term threat to America. Um, in the Cold War, the US had a clear goal in organizing principle, counter Soviet aggression and influence. It didn't always work out so well in the particulars, but the fundamental insight of the containment strategy was correct. And the US was patient long enough to allow that to be demonstrated. In the post-Cold War, our attitude was to stabilize the post-Cold War international system and consolidate the gains by transitioning countries to market economics and popularly elected governments. Again, it didn't always work out so well in the particulars. And people can quibble over how far we got with that. But certainly, there were tremendous gains in global wealth creation and well-being, and of course, in overall wealth, overall wealth increases here in the United States. But now we seem to be in a position of rejecting our own post-Cold War efforts to integrate countries into a US-led international system. And we appear to have decided that since Russia and China have resorted to great power prerogatives of unilateralism in Crimea and the South China Sea, the system is fundamentally broken and should be jettisoned. Plus, the US doesn't know if it itself wants to be constrained by such a system, I think. Um, the American people have 
apparently been conned into also believing that the international system that the US built and led over the last 70 years now presents unacceptable constraints on our behavior and that it fundamentally undermines our national interests. And some of those who peddle these misapprehensions also say that China holds itself apart from the system, seeks to overthrow the system, set up its own version of the system. You get the idea. So even if all of this were true, where would it leave us? Do the American people really want to hasten the transfer to a non-US-led international order or to a G0 world, which Ian Bremmer has talked about? Does the rest of the world want this? Does China want this? I think I'm not sure that that's the case. Uh, in this moment, we seem to be fixated on competition with China, smart competition, competitive coexistence, or per the national security strategy, strategic competition. But competition and rivalry are features of the international system. They're not a strategy, nor do they reveal any overarching US purpose. We seem to be going backwards to more simplistic binary forms of defining possibilities, which is not going to be in the long-term interests of the United States. So maybe we're falling into this lack of imagination because we're hearing so much about the Thucydides trap that it is inducing a panic and we can no longer think. And I've seen Graham Allison twice in the last week, so I'm, I mean him no disrespect, but it is amazing the degree to which this narrative has overtaken almost every conversation on these issues. Um, and good for him, because he has his book coming out in Chinese now, and it's going to be a bestseller, I'm sure. But um, I personally don't believe that the US and China are headed for military conflict, particularly given the lethality of modern weapons and many incentives and structures that are in place to avoid this eventuality. But the usefulness of the Thucydides trap analogy is that it points to the dangers of this paradoxical psychological insecurity of leading powers and the counterproductive and self-fulfilling ways in which they end up bringing about exactly the dynamic that they fear, this usurpation. So in the Thucydides trap case file, at the end of the book, there's a list of all the cases. There are very few cases, either through war or peaceful means, where the rising power was ultimately thwarted in its rise. So let me repeat that. Very few cases where the rising power was ultimately thwarted, whether through peaceful means or war, it eventually rose anyway. Um, so I think that's something to think about. The traditional lesson of the Thucydides trap that people talk about is we have to avoid war because there's an inevitability of war. There's actually a number of cases that don't end in war, but almost all the cases end with the rising power usurping the ruling power. Um, another aspect I think that Thucydides dynamic overlooks is that in the 21st century it seems clear that national power comes from economic dynamism. It comes from societal cohesion and the ability to adapt and be resilient in one's governance not from territorial enhancements or military power. And where the, U where the US and China are relative to one another on these measures should be the focus for people who are looking at competition, I think. Uh, if you take anything away from this talk today, though, I hope it would be consciousness about the wisdom of treating China as an enemy, given the above. 
The United States has a habit in its political culture of having to regard others as either with us or against us. When the reality is, and as a diplomat I know this, the reality is that other countries are for themselves. Um, Um, we may argue that their goals or tactics are self-defeating, and that's what we do a lot of times as diplomats. We try to convince countries that actually what they think are their interests are not really their interests. Their interests are closer to something that we want them to do. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of times they see through this. <laughs> so the key is to discern those places where the interests of the two parties converge and to try to expand that space. Uh, former Singapore for Foreign Affairs Secretary Bilahari says that dipl diplomacy is seeing the world through your competitor's eyes to understand his frame of reference and that statecraft is then to maneuver them into your frame of reference or to use their frame of reference to accomplish your goals. So I'm sure that's exactly what was going on in Hanoi last week. Um, but it didn't turn out the way anyone expected. Um, some say that the Chinese and U.S. interests are diverging. In fact, I had a debate on this with one of my close colleagues uh, a few, couple of months ago. And that may or may not be true. I think it's um, very hard to see how either U.S. or Chinese national interests might have changed very much in the last 10 years. And at any rate, it's impossible to measure whether, you know, how much our interests may be diverging. But I think what is clear is that there is significant overlap in the interests of the United States and China, and there is a lot that remains to be explored and exploited in that overlap. This doesn't mean that we should expect China's behavior to be benign or that we should accept actions that run counter to our interests, but we should expect that China will test the limits of U.S. interests in those areas it considers vital to its security and prosperity. And we need to recognize this and inventory and prioritize our interests so that we don't just continually fall back and cede ground. We need a realistic internal assessment of what expected changes should be accepted, what possible changes should not be accepted. For example, Americans will need to expect and accept that China's economy will be larger than ours, given that it has four times our population. We also need to decide where there are likely areas of Chinese misunderstanding of US positions and try to clarify our policies so that Chinese expectations can be properly calibrated. Expectations, mismatching expectations causes a lot of problems as we also saw in Hanoi last week. Um, some previous speakers here have spoken and written about the importance of assurance or reassurance in US-China relations. And although it sounds suspiciously soft, I cannot emphasize enough how important this is for setting expectations in the Chinese political culture and system. Our system is very cacophonous, and Chinese foreign policy elites are constantly needing to defend their approach in the face of more skeptical elements in China. They have politics too. In the US, we tend to dismiss the notion that other countries have politics, but bland restatements of our enduring US positions are very important as our actions that back those up. Um, neither we nor the Chinese can predict or control what happens in the future. While China faces many internal challenges, I do not foresee a collapse in my lifetime. 
I'm 55, so my grandmother's lived a long time, 40 years. If I'm right, I don't get any prizes. Um, I, I grew up in the Soviet sort of tradition of trying to predict when the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Remember, everyone was wrong. Um, so I don't, I don't pretend to have any crystal ball, but that's my prediction. Um, I also don't believe that any Chinese 100-year plan to topple the US and rule the world can survive contact with the reality of a dynamic external environment. But crucially, China has shown itself able to make mistakes and then change and adapt accordingly. Under the policy of opening and reform, of course, the Chinese system has shown great flexibility and evolution. Whether this will continue, I think, is an open question at the moment, which a question which I raise with my Chinese counterparts all the time, and they don't have a good answer for. And I think it's worrying a lot of people. Um, but I would argue that despite indications of Xi Jinping's ambivalence about broad market reforms and his insertion of the party into more of Chinese political life, that the Chinese system will continue to change and adapt. Many will say that it is changing in ways inimical to opening and to rule following. And in some areas, this is clearly true. But don't be surprised if China makes course corrections and continues to improve its own governance and the lives of average Chinese people. In this sense, it will continue to be a strong, self-regarding state that will have something to contribute to solving future problems. China knows that its rise is worrying to the West and the United States. Indeed, it was President Xi Jinping who first offered to work out a new type of major power relations in his first meeting with President Obama, based on a desire to avoid Graham Allison's Thucydides trap and a conflict with the US. The Obama administration eventually rejected this formula out of concern over the prospect of an ill-defined but ever-expanding list of Chinese core interests that the US would be required to respect. Um, as a default, the US has been typically most comfortable with an ambiguous description of US-China relations, providing us with kind of a hedge and an ability to respond flexibly to Chinese behavior as it calculates the overall trend and intention of Chinese actions. So we've had constructive, cooperative, and candid relations under George W. Bush. And then we had expand cooperation while managing differences under both Obama and, I guess, under the Trump administration, although it's not really clear what we've got now. Um, but those are so wonky that you know, they're almost unused. Um, most other countries, including US allies, have a strategic partnership with China. Uh, Ronald Reagan called the US and China friends. Um, but recently, we've been a lot more ambivalent than that. So uh, to devise a policy that would allow for more productive relations, I think we need to look at what China wants. I think we need to decide what's important to us. But we also need to consider the likelihood that future problems will not be bilateral. They will be multilateral or transnational. No matter what the US in our America First guys or what China in its bilateral first um, preferences um, might like to see. 
this has been the reality actually for quite some time. We never talk about it, but uh, it is unlikely that future major problems will only affect um, or only be solved by the US and China. So as we start this inventory, my attempt at the roadmap for co-evolution, I think first we should look at what China wants. So what does China want? Number one on my list is stability. First and foremost, domestically and secondarily in its East Asia region. No conflict. Um, number two I have on my list is continued growth of national economic power access to natural resources and markets to provide for that. Um, this gets to the issue of the Belt and Road Initiative and some of the other initiatives we've seen coming out of China. And they usually couch this in win-win cooperation terms. Number three on my list, international respect and recognition of the legitimacy of China's governance model. Um, this gets to the issue of mutual respect. On some specifics, I think China wants sufficient influence to counter outside pressure points, mostly coming from the US, on things like, for example, the dollar-denominated international financial system, which gives us a lot of ability to impose sanctions on other countries, um, would like to counter pressure from US and the US and its allies on military encroachments on its borders and other perceived security threats. Um, another area that it would like to uh, make progress on is having sufficient influence to counter multilateral pressure. So this gets to the issue of what changes does China want to see in the international system. There are obviously aspects of it that it doesn't like, especially re relating to things having to do with interference in internal affairs, human rights, and uh, interference or uh, pressure to make changes in its governance. And of course, um, another thing that it would like, consolidation of national borders, things like Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and yes, the South China Sea. Uh, but those are the big, big things that I have on the China want list. There may be more, but, um, but that's, a, that's already a pretty significant list. Uh, there are areas here where clearly the U.S. and China have major problems and differences. But looking at it from the Chinese perspective, that list, um, again, from Chinese interests, those things would all appear to be fairly uh, justified uh, from their perspective, areas of interest. Um, moreover, it's almost certain that none of these, none of these lists of interests on the part of China will change in the medium or longer term. In fact, I would argue they've been very much enduring since the beginning of U.S.-China relations and probably even before. Um, notice that I said the legitimacy of the governance model, not the export of the governance model. I do not believe that China seeks to remake foreign governing systems or that it sees gov its governance model as really exportable. Other countries are not likely to adopt governance with Chinese characteristics. So this issue was uh, raised actually fairly prominently this week when uh, in the last couple of days, a Xinhua editorial came out extolling China's version of democracy. 
but noting that it did not consider it to be an exportable model, interestingly. So, um, so to explore where we might be able to develop cooperation or coevolution, I think we need to ask whether there is any unexploited space of overlap with China's interests, or are there areas neither side has yet identified that could be convergent? And there are a number of convergences, questions, and divergences that you can see from the list of China's interests that I, that I mentioned already. Um, so I think we should look at these and, and, and consider where and whether we have convergence. So the first one, is there convergence on the issue of um, wanting an internally stable China and a peaceful Asia-Pacific? I mean, as a diplomat, I would have to say the answer to that should be yes from the U.S. side. But um, we can maybe talk about that. Um, second one, do we want both of our economies to continue to grow and accrue national economic power and contribute to um, global growth? I would say, again, that the answer to that should be yes, although we seem to be having some trouble on that one at the moment. Um, so here's a question for you. Are we willing to accord China respect and concede that the Chinese Communist Party's governance is legitimate, whether or not we believe it is the best system or sustainable over the long term? Answer to that question from the US side heretofore has basically been no. Uh, but I note that we seem to have done this recently with North Korea. So maybe things are changing. Uh, another question, are we willing to accept changes to the international system, and can we work with China to strengthen that system? Or will we see continued resistance by major powers to international constraints and a consequent weakening of that system? Are there prospects for the US and China to both agree to international instruments and covenants for the sake of ameliorating more destabilizing or wasteful competition, things like arms control agreements? The answer to that heretofore has been sometimes yes and sometimes no, depending on the topic. But certainly, more and more people are talking about potential for arms control to prevent an arms race in Asia. And I think that is an interesting thing to consider. Um, Another question, we would no doubt be unhappy with China's efforts to counter the US financial and Asian security dominance, but um, that doesn't mean that its efforts won't be successful over time. In fact, I predict they, especially um, on the financial um, diversification, I think that they're going to eventually um, have some alternatives to the dollar-denominated trading system. So is there any arrangement or institution that we should be strengthening now to hedge against the possibility of something worse happening in the future. We don't seem to be very good at that in the US, so I'm not sure we'll get there. Um, I should note that it is not sufficient for the US, for, for us here in the audience to answer these questions. We have to seek and find a durable American consensus on China in order to maintain peace and security and in order to take advantage of the opportunities presented by China's rise. Um, I would submit that we're doing a terrible job of that right now. Uh, we have a lot of collateral damage to our international standing and our relationship with China by the constant flip-flopping and um, changes in policy. Uh, we should try to go for something that is more durable, I think. And given that our interests don't change over time, I think it should be possible to do that. Um, 
rather than be content, too, with mere coexistence, I think we should be aiming higher. There's much to be gained for the United States from potential U.S.-China cooperation on issues that are fundamental to our joint peace and prosperity. I've lived this cooperation with China. I've seen it solve problems. And while it is always difficult, always difficult, China has been a valuable partner. And that was also a statement from Condoleezza Rice on China's contributions to the efforts in the Great War on Terror after 9-11. So, so high-level people in the US have seen this partnership, have seen its value for the United States, and have been willing in the past to to uh, go on public record noting it. I think China can and will do more, either with or without us. But it would be better for the United States if it was with us, obviously. Um, so let me turn now to a discussion of some of the areas where if China and the US could find space to cooperate, they might spur a virtuous co-evolution cycle. First of all, domestic governance. Chinese technocratic governance is improving people's satisfaction with government services in China. This is a fact. Uh, China has extensive experience and innovation in the management of mega cities. China is using automated systems to register and resolve certain types of court cases. So we may find problems with some aspects of governance methods in use in China. And of course, we do. We have many problems with various aspects of governance in China. But US mayors and governors have had continuing contacts with China and with their counterparts in big Chinese cities and find they have a lot to learn and a lot to share regarding pragmatic city management and governance issues. East Asian security. For the 40 years of normalization, there have been no conflicts to speak of in East Asia. That's pretty amazing. We should think more about that. Um, states in the region have been able to balance economic growth and growing dependency on China with the US security umbrella to f avoid falling prey to pressure tactics. And this will need to continue. China will have to evolve to see the value of the constraining effects of US security presence. And the US will have to evolve in respecting legitimate Chinese security concerns. This is the most difficult area. Maybe Bob would have a different opinion, but I think it's the most difficult area. And, um, but I do think it's not the most salient area. So I hope that over time, we can find a way to work on this. And this tension will be ameliorated. Um, there are clearly areas for potential cooperation on East Asian security as well, such as on the DPRK, uh, which we have seen and which actually President Trump referred to in his remarks after his summit in Hanoi. Um, on the economy, I mean, Asia is the future engine of global growth, and China and the US can both make tremendous gains or engender tremendous setbacks, depending on our ability to co-evolve the international economic system. Uh, the U.S. should continue to press China on reforms and opening and should push the envelope by joining the TPP to push higher standards in trade in the region. This will have the effect of a trade-induced race to the top, which President Obama talked a lot about, um, and will allow the U.S. and its partners to set the modern standards for new technologies, which will be the lifeblood of future growth. Technology and cyber. Right now, this area is at the center of a major standoff, it would appear. 
Um, but as two major technology innovators and users whose populations and systems are tied to our devices, the US and China are going to have to cooperate on many aspects of technology, including standards, regulation, emergency response, international norms for protection of infrastructure, and arms control type arrangements. Uh, right now, China is working on setting a number of these standards and norms, while the US is basically sitting on the side. International governance. International institutions are in need of an overhaul. And since China's complaint is that it has not been given a say in setting up the system, we should work with China on the reforms. This is an opportunity to revamp global development programs and their funding, fix and modernize the trading system, and hear China's objections to various aspects of the UN system and their ideas for reform. My experience has been that China is better at complaining about current structures than it is about driving the initiative for new efforts or institutions. But China recently surprised us with the AIIB. So maybe it has some other practical ideas worth listening to. Uh, this is a crucial area for future work as both the US and China should want to strengthen the international system for their own long-term interests. Maybe the US will even finally ratify the law of the sea convention, but I doubt it. Um, global issues. The most imminent and dangerous threats that we face, frankly, are transnational challenges such as terrorism, environmental and health disasters, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. These threats can never be fully eliminated, but they can be mitigated through active management and international cooperation. They will be enormously more dangerous and intractable if the US and China are working at cross purposes on these issues. People in the national security industrial complex, as I call it in Washington, have a tendency to dismiss things like health and disease, environment, non-proliferation, food and product safety, education, scientific research, going to Mars, going to the moon, transnational crime, as being multilateral issues, boring issues. But these are the very things that profoundly affect human lives and that our citizens care most about. US-China cooperation on climate change has the potential to be planet altering. And if we don't find a way to do it, our future generations will not forgive us. Um, so, you know, in conclusion, let me just say that I know that the vision that I have spelled out here is going to sound overly optimistic to some, maybe even Pollyannish, panda huggery, but I am all about trying to um, take care of US interests long term. And I don't see much of that going on right now in Washington, which is very alarming to me. But there is already work going on between the United States and China in most of these areas. Uh, Chinese and Americans working together on health problems, dealing with an aging population. That's a, probably a place where we could each learn something from the other. Uh, clean water and food systems environmental degradation, and myriad other topics. Um, if we operate from a position of confidence and keep an open mind, 
I think myriad opportunities will present themselves. And this is how the U.S. has traditionally seen China and how we want Chinese to see the United States as a land of opportunity. We should not allow our fears to rob us of these possibilities. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Susan, for uh, uh, a fascinating and wide-ranging um, uh, overview of the relationship, uh, past, present, and, and, and future. Uh, an overview both of, of your own, based both on your own firsthand experience of the relationship, but also taking due account of the work of scholars to try and analyze that relationship. Um, maybe I'll start with with a question. Um, uh, the third part, so your, your review of the, the review of the literature was followed by your inventory in three parts. The, 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 um, the third part of your, inter, uh, the second part of your inventory was mm -hmm. areas of, of convergence, mm -hmm. uh, areas of possible overlap. Um, despite your rather optimistic tone, at the end of, in your conclusions, your treatment of that part of the inventory was pretty pessimistic. I, I heard several times, we seem to be having some problems in area X at this moment. And so the question I want to ask you is um, whether these problems are uh, a short-term divergence, perhaps a short-term divergence driven by the, the immediate dynamics of politics from what you called tr traditional views of the relationship. Um, that is to say whether the situation uh, is basically uh, uh, um, we could, we could return to a more uh, uh, positive relationship with a shift in immediate short-term policy, or whether the structural shifts that have been taking place uh, over the last 40 years uh, make it actually more difficult to return to, to the optimistic view of the relationship that you think of has prevailed for the last 200 years. That is to say, is the, is the core issue structural or policy? Um, my perspective is that the core issue is policy, political, because, I mean, as I said, you know, changes, you know, China's rise, we've been seeing this coming since the global, the great financial crisis in 2008. I mean, the period of eight years of the Obama term, we started to see, um, you know, China getting more assertive in various international fora. Uh, of course, we had the island building in the South China Sea, et cetera, but the relationship didn't fundamentally break down. And Obama had a, a vision or a, a strategy for what he was trying to do with China um, that, you know, many people say that wasn't, you know, that he was weak, that he wasn't strong enough. But then I remind people of all of the things we did during that time. I think, I think it was actually, you know, um, given where we are in the structural part of the relationship, I think that the pushback and the ways in which we were able to work together in the Obama administration show that that is the kind of place that we need to go back to, really. Um, I don't, you know, I think obviously right now we have 
politics in Washington. I didn't talk as much about the politics in China, but that's part of the dynamic, right? And that's also been going on since, you know, well, well before um, now. I mean, we ha we've had this kind of uh, growing question in our minds about whether China is really going to continue on its opening and reform path or not. Uh, so I think whether or not China continues on its opening and reform path, um, you know, something we need to be very concerned about. But whether it does that or not, we still need to deal with China. It's not going anywhere. Uh, and so, you know, as a, as a person sitting in Washington and thinking about long-term U.S. interests, I need to think about both possibilities. China is continuing to open and reform, you know, that seems to be what we've always said was in the interests of the United States, and I believe still is in the interests of the United States. Um, so are we going to be promoting that reform and opening? Can we do anything to promote that? I mean, I think that the evidence is that we don't have as much influence on that as we would like. Although I guess the joke in China now is there's two people that are pushing opening and two old men who push opening and reform in China, Deng Xiaoping and Donald Trump. But I mean, I still think we don't necessarily have as much influence on that. And we have to be prepared to deal with China if it doesn't happen. And how, and, and, and how are we going to realistically deal with that? And I think that's what you know, from the U.S. long-term interest perspective, we have to think about. We tend to be very emotional and and reflexive on these things, which is not serving, I think, our interest. If that answers your question, let me. Let me. It does. Let me. Let me follow up with with uh, um, uh, a kind of uh, problem. I think that that last position might raise for the areas of convergence. Um, we have to deal with China if it doesn't happen. That is to say, if it doesn't change in the directions that. Are, we, we think are in, are, are in American interests. But then if we go back to your inventory of places uh, for productive engagement, um, if China goes, so one of them was to strengthen the international system. Well, depending on the direction China goes, it's going to have very different ideas about what constitutes strengthening the international system. Depending on the direction that China takes, it's going to have very different ideas about what constitutes developing uh, healthy economic growth. So how do you how do you uh, how do you pursue those possible areas of shared interests while still recognizing that China may come up with very different understandings of what those interests are? Well, I think I mentioned that if we don't do anything, then we will be done too. You know, we will just continually be falling back and seeding ground, which is basically where we've been. I mean, the right answer is we probably should have done something about these things ten years ago, but we weren't willing to contemplate the need to change the international system in a way that accommodated anything about rising you know, other powers until we had the great financial crisis and then we were forced to create the G20. You know, so we tend not to do things knowing full well they're coming down the pike uh, until we're forced to do them. And that's also a function probably of our, of our politics, but it's also you know, to some extent, a, a blind spot for us. And so what should we be doing? We should get with China right now while it's still invested in the international system. It still considers itself um, wanting to be seen as a responsible government, wanting to be seen as 
um, a, a, a good sort of international player by its neighbors, et cetera, and, and work with them now on changing the international system. Because if we wait, it's probably maybe not going to get better. And then we'll be in a weaker position to reform it in the way we want. So I think the US has a lot of ambivalence about the international system, which creates problems for us. But if we were smart, you know, the US um, has a hard time coming to terms with the the, this, the phrase relative decline, people are quite offended when you say, well, the US is in relative decline. I mean, it, it's kind of a fact. It's not something to be offended about. Um, but, you know, if, um, if, if you think about sort of what we're going to be able to do in the future and how we're going to be able to do it affordably, the international system is the perfect answer. Uh, really, I mean, that's what we created it for, and, and that's how we burden share, and that's how we have coalitions to solve problems. I mean, we're not going to do everything by ourselves. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a contradiction in, the, in what you see right now going on in Washington. I mean, we, we don't want to do anything in the international system, and yet we don't want to pay anything, pay for anything on our own either. I mean, how are we going to be leading in this world. And I think the American people want us to continue to lead. I don't think they want to just hand the whole thing over to Chinese leadership. So it doesn't strike me that anything we're doing right now fits with any particular vision of where we're going. On this issue of, on the issue, this issue of being offended by relative decline, I can't help but say I'm, I'm astonished by how much attention there's paid to the China becoming the world's largest economy. I think it's actually safe to say with some confidence that the day China becomes the world's largest economy will be not dissimilar to the day before China becomes the right. world's largest economy. Right. It's this right. thing that the media is focusing right. on, but right. China's growing at a, at a well, rate. Great. I don't want to monopolize the questions. We have lots of time, or monopolize the conversation. We have lots of time for, uh, for, for uh, questions and brief comments. Um, I would uh, invite you to, we are, we're recording this for, uh, for posterity. If you would step up and, and uh, or you'll, just put up your hand, and we'll have a, micro a microphone delivered. Meg, to you. I want to ask about something you said earlier in the talk. And um, I'm intrigued by the idea that binding China into the international system wasn't a failure. And I want to agree with you. And I think that I do, but I need some ammunition when I'm going to make this argument. And I wonder if there's a certain connection to why some some component of the American people now see the international system as something that they don't find legitimate or don't want to participate in, and partly because, you know, China did do certain things in the South China Sea or with trade that people think has sort of belied the mission of the international system. And so I wonder, in what sense did binding China within the international system succeed rather than fail? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, I think Americans' ambivalence about the international system pertains more to constraints on our own freedom of action than it does have anything to do with anything that China's doing in the international system or not, or the South China Sea. I mean, maybe some people you know, have a problem with what China's doing in the South China Sea and see that as the fault of the international system not having enough teeth to stop them. But I think mostly it's about you know, limit, I mean, we're the unipolar hyperpower, and anything that we do in the name of the international system means that we are constraining ourselves because we could do whatever we want and have done in some cases. So, um, so I mean, China 
um, also has said, actually, point blank, that, well, you know, the U.S. only, you know, refers to the international system when it's convenient, and when it's not convenient, it does whatever it's want, it wants, and we want to be able to do that, too. They've said that, but, um, and, and they have done it in some cases, the disregard of the um, uh, Hague Tribunal ruling on the South China Sea, for example, and there are other instances, of course, but um, that said, you know, in, in 19, um, sort of before the opening to the U.S. in 1972 when Nixon went and then 78, 79 when we finally established diplomatic relations. I mean, China hadn't been in the U.N. They didn't have a single treaty that they had signed. They weren't a member of any of these regimes. I mean, the nonproliferation uh, performance of China over the last 30 years has been an extraordinary story of success. They have joined almost every single arms control convention. We had the companies from China that were uh, proliferating arms in, contra you know, in contravention of international um, conventions come to the State Department. They did a training program on compliance. We had people sitting in their companies showing them how to make sure they weren't um, exporting things. I mean, this is incredible. Most people don't know that this is going on. So I think, I mean, that nonproliferation is, is one example. Of course, there are still problems in nonproliferation with China. It doesn't mean we've solved every problem, but they have basically come round to agreeing with us that all of these things need to be controlled and they have responsibility to control them and pay for that control and monitor it, et cetera, and use checks, all of that. So that's just one example. I mean, I think there are a lot of examples on all kinds of things in aviation, food safety, health. I mean, just across the board, almost every international convention that you can think of, they are a party to it, and they're an important contributor to it. Um, you know, climate change is in the, in the Paris Accord is an obvious one where they were trying to be an outlier. They were trying to free ride on the international system. They put their national development goals higher than the ability of their people in major cities to breathe. And, you know, eventually, due to both the pressure from their own people, but also from pressure from international, they moved. And now they're doing better than we are. So, um, you know, they the tactic of shaming works much better with the Chinese than it does with the, with the United States. And getting international sh opprobrium heaped on them is very effective. It might not always be that effective. So I think we should move to try to use that to the maximum effect now. Because once they're bound into an agreement, I mean, it's interesting. I, I worked in the Soviet Union and in Russia um, and... Um, you know, there's some similarities in the training of their diplomats and, and the way they think about international relations in the multilateral context. And, you know, once they're in an agreement, they are loath to, to break it. They're loath to be accused of violating it. So it's a, it's a very useful way. I mean, it's boring. Nobody, nobody thinks it's exciting. And that's why, you know, nobody pays attention to it. But it's, in fact, the daily lifeblood of what goes on between countries out there in the world. Um, I, I should ask that, so that question came from Meg Rithmeyer, a political scientist at HBS. Um, I'd ask you just to quickly introduce yourself, and given the, en the answer to your question, I think, Mark Wu, maybe you should go next, because it, where's the microphone gone? And if you, I'll just recognize people as, as, as they put their hands up. Okay, 
Uh, thank you very much for that very uh, thought-provoking speech. I'm Mark Wu from the law school. Um, I wanted to ask, I think we all know in this audience that over the last decade we've seen China become a more responsible stakeholder, in large part thanks to the work that you did at the State Department in engaging China. Uh, but I think what we struggle with here is that there are certain structural factors which give rise to certain asymmetries and what China will do as opposed to what the U.S. will do for the international system. And your suggestion about trying to bind China into um, commitments um, does not extend to certain domains. Uh, for example, uh, cyber uh, elements uh, where we've seen the Chinese, uh, despite the great work that you all did in terms of uh, engaging somewhat on it, right? We've seen how that's lapsed. Um, when it comes to commercial uh, opportunities in the digital domain, uh, there's an asymmetry there, right? When it comes to global, uh, U.S. tech companies are certainly much more limited uh, compared to Chinese tech companies, uh, vice versa, and that seems to be uh, bounded, right? Uh, uh, when it comes to uh, certain contributions on global public goods, uh, we still see that. Um, the message that I heard you saying is something along the lines of, we ought to be patient as long as we stick with uh, long-term American values, China will eventually come around, uh, as opposed to um, the prevailing mood in Washington is, well, if China isn't going to change, we need to engage in reciprocity. Uh, so my question to you is, are there certain domains where these asymmetries exist where you do think moving towards more of a reciprocal arrangement does make sense, uh, as opposed to continuing to take the high road and using sort of shaming and global norms in this, in this hope that eventually China will come around? Um, great question. Um, so I guess uh, there's, you raised a lot of different things, and so getting into the specifics of each one will be complicated. But my, my overall view on this is that um, the U.S. ought to be using international law, international norms, and the international system to go after China's um, transgressions, of which there are many, and you pointed some out. Um, and we ought to be getting together with other stakeholders to do that. And if we do that, I think China will be responsive. If there's areas of international law that are missing, and we can't, for example, get at subsidies or get at some of the other practices that the Chinese are doing, forced joint ventures and other things, um, then we should get that somehow um, incorporated into uh, international uh, instruments, whether it be through the WTO, if that's too hard, you know, we had this, China was dumping a lot of steel and there was this overcapacity group at the G20 to try to shame them into de decreasing their production of steel, which seemed to work. There's a lot of different things. People are very creative in the, in the broader international diplomatic community. So there's a lot of ways that you can go after things with China. I, you know, I know everyone's really excited about this trade war and the dramatic, you know, theater that we've got going on, but I don't frankly think it's the most effective way to deal with the problem. And I think the problem has not even really been very well defined and it's been much misunderstood and maligned by the mainstream media and other media, frankly. I mean, I don't agree with you that the cyber agreement that Obama reached in 2015 has been broached by the Chinese and I don't know if anyone wants to take that up with me, but I can speak at some length about it. It's quite complicated. But the cyber issue itself is 
it's a it's a whole new kind of problem because you know espionage has now become autonomous basically you know and espionage is beyond the realm of law right so you know what people are doing in that space and how you define what they're doing as espionage versus something else is a very difficult thing and we haven't really faced it before um, but I did just on that note notice that the Chinese accused Michael Kovrig and the other Canadian guy of, of spying today. And I was wondering who on, on the behalf of whom are they spying? But anyway, so you get the point that it's this whole espionage thing is very complicating in the cyber area. And then there's the attacks on critical infrastructure. So there's a military angle to this too if you use cyber weapons to disable an enemy's critical infrastructure. What, do we, what is critical infrastructure? Definition, very hard. We've been trying to do this in the international community. I mean, people think everything is critical infrastructure now. So, I mean, it, these are questions that have not been grappled with before, I think is what I'm saying. So the cyber area is kind of a, a, a different kind of animal than all of the other things that we could, I think, reasonably expect we could get some kind of international um, you know, agreement on, or at least try to get that, or at least listen to the Chinese perspective. I mean, it's true that they band together with the Russians in a lot of these things and have a different approach than we do to some of these things. But that goes back you know, since the beginning, to the beginning of the UN, basically. I mean, we've been wrestling with the two of them on some of these um, particularly sort of military security issues. They tend to sort of come together. Um, but but we get agreements and and you can work with them. I think is what I'm saying. I mean, there's an impression out there now that you can't work with the Chinese. It's not true. You can actually get a lot of things more than with the Russians for sure. Um, and we're not even sort of trying now. And it's very strange the way we've gone kind of wholesale to this. We're not going to talk to them um, kind of attitude, which I think is is hard hurting ourselves. That's my point. And Sophie. Hi, um, I'm a PhD candidate here, and I'd like to follow up on a, an issue that you just mentioned, uh, touching on Xinjiang and human rights. Uh, as has been widely reported in the media, there are currently a million people arbitrarily detained in Xinjiang, and I was wondering how this situation should be factored in the US uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis China. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's a million, <laughs> there's a million issues uh, with China, and this is obviously an extremely disturbing one. I spent a couple of years of my early time in China, you know, traveling around Tibet a lot, um, and you know, it's quite disturbing the policy prescriptions that the Chinese government has come up with, both for Tibet and this case in Xinjiang is even. Uh, is even more egregious in my view, um, although they're both terrible. And um, you know, there are a lot of things the Chinese government does that are that are sort of very um, you know egregious. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And it's, but I mean, it's not. I mean, how much how much can the U.S. government do about this? What what what? I mean, this is another case where I think the this is a perfect thing for the international community to be heaping opprobrium on the Chinese government about, and th they would be doing it a lot more effectively if the U.S. government was leading in that effort and and had a 
kind of coherent policy and had discussions ongoing with Chinese counterparts where these things could be raised. I mean, right now we're not talking to anybody. So, I mean, I raised this issue when I went to China and I raised it with Ambassador Tsui when I saw him in Atlanta a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, whenever that was. But, um, but I'm not a U.S. government official and I don't know who's raising it in the U.S. government. But, but people should be doing that. And the internet, like I said, shame, international opprobrium, heaping, on, I mean, that's basically what we can bring to this. I don't think, um, you know, trying to have a UN rapporteur go in and see what's going on, that's the kind of thing that I would advocate with Chinese counterparts, let people go in and see what's going on. If you have such a wonderful setup and you've decided how to eliminate extremism everywhere in the world, we should, we should have a technical exchange program and go in and see what's going on there. We'd like to know about that. Um, so, I mean, there's... Um, things that can be done. And over time, I believe that this thing will probably, it's a mistake, and so they should change it. And I think, hopefully, they will, but um, we'll see. Uh, there's a gentleman in the back there, and then Ezra, you next. Thank you. Uh, I'm Degang Sun from Center for Middle Eastern Studies, Harvard. I'm a visiting scholar from Shanghai, China. My question is about the possibility and the prospect for Sino-US complementary partnership, especially in the regional conflict resolutions, uh, such as uh, the greater Middle East of Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Yemen, and anti-piracy uh, area, and also Iranian nuclear issue. Thank you so much. Great question. Thank you. Yeah, so I think, I mean, this was an area that President Obama actually was hoping would be a very fruitful area for U.S.-China cooperation. And, and I guess I could say that, you know, it, it kind of was. I mean, the, the, the issue is that China has traditionally been pretty wary of getting involved in trying to resolve these, um, you know, conflict hotspots if they didn't have a direct... Chinese interest in the issue. So China's got a border with Afghanistan, and I think, you know, correctly, um, people have understood that China has, therefore, a much more direct interest in trying to make sure that that conflict doesn't spill over the border into China than some of the others you mentioned, like Syria, Yemen. Um, of course, North Korea has been the one area that we know China has a very you know, compelling national security interest in how that proceeds. And so that has been the one conflict area, I would say, where we've spent more time because we could get the Chinese to be more interested and bring more to the problem. I mean, I think no one more than, you know, the State Department would welcome um, increased Chinese activity and sort of increased Chinese... Um, capability in trying to solve some of these international problems. This was the whole responsible stakeholder idea where, you know, both under President George W. Bush and even under Obama, there was a perception that China was still free riding on the international system, you know, picking and choosing issues where China had a direct interest, but not wanting to pay or get involved in solving problems further from its shores. Um, so to speak. And so I think, you know, one of the answers that China has come up with, of course, is the Belt and Road Initiative, which is creating a lot of consternation in a lot of places. But actually, China providing public goods 
for the sake of providing public goods is what people have been saying they want. Now, they may not really mean it because maybe they don't want China to increase its global influence footprint, but you know, we, we can't have it both ways. We can't say we want China to pay more for global goods and then say, oh, we don't want China to do more in global goods because they're getting too much influence. I mean, that was the whole you know, idea behind sort of welcoming China into the international system as it rose to have it sort of provide those goods inside that system in accordance with those standards. And I think that's why now the Belt and Road Initiative is creating problems because it's not being done within any kind of you know, international lens, international development lens. It's more a bilateral China X country program with not much um, transparency or oversight. So in creating some, some problems, some successes. I think people have been pretty unfair actually in assessing the Belt and Road Initiative. Some places it's doing a good, good work. Some places it's run into problems. And um, I think you know, it would be helpful for China to sort of come back to the international community and maybe ask some questions about, you know, hey, how could we be doing this better and try to get it to be more genuinely inclusive and um, you know, try to answer some of the criticisms that way. But in other words, it would be good if the capability preceded the activity. Yes, not the other way around. Not the other way around. I mean, we had a lot of experimentation with development in back in the day, and we've learned some lessons, and we'd love to share. And um, you know, I think that would be good. Ezra, I think all of us, Ezra Vogel. I think all of us are academics uh, have benefited from this presentation of diplomacy at its best. What does the other side want? What, do, what does our side want? What's in our interests? And then to begin to think of how you deal with that. I have an unfair question. Uh, supposing you were to apply that same kind of analysis to uh, our domestic scene, and you took State Department on one side and you put Congress on the other. And you say, what are the interests of Congress and what are the interests of the State Department? And how do we get those two sides uh, to work together? I wonder if you have any comments uh, based on your own experience. <laughs> I'm much more optimistic about US-China possibilities for <laughs> convergence than I am the State Department and Congress. Um, but I, I had a great talk with some of the um, Harvard, um, the Kennedy School students. Some of them are going into the State Department um, after their time here at Harvard. And, um, and there were a few others too that are interested in the Foreign Service. And um, I did break the news to them that you know, they're not always going to feel that the American people or the American government or even their bosses appreciate what they're doing, but they should keep going. <laughs> it's the inner sort of motivation that keeps us going, I think, not the fact that the Congress is, is or isn't going to fund our budget this year and does or doesn't seem to want to approve any of our nominees for any of the overseas posts, no matter how convenient and no, no matter how qualified they are, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I think there, Congress definitely has a different, a completely different set of interests than. Or are there any interests that when you appeal to that converge or that the American people can find hope within certain kinds of interests within the Congress that could lead to some of the government? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that has happened, and 
I mean, there are political scientists in the room that know a lot more about this, I'm sure, than I do. But certainly, there used to be a bipartisan consensus on foreign policy in the Senate, at least. Um, and there were these very senior you know, senators who, across the aisle, Republican and Democrat, but they would go out to lunch together. They would meet with State Department people away from the cameras. They would you know, have a lot of interaction with us. And, and it was a genuinely kind of bipartisan approach. I think, uh, unfortunately, um, yeah, we, a lot of those senators have now left the scene. And there's a lot less appreciation maybe for the need to have a bipartisan foreign policy so that you can actually address long-term interests. And I have news for you, this negotiation with North Korea is gonna take years, probably multiple administrations. And how will we be able to keep our set of interests that we're going for in that negotiation consistent so that we can get somewhere at the end of the day? Um, because you've gotta have a longer term time horizon if you're gonna get progress on most of these things. Hi, I'm Karen Thornburn, in East Asian Languages and Civilizations in the Asia Center here at Harvard. And I was really struck by your comment that there's this attitude in the administration among many Americans more generally that we just can't engage with China, that there's, there's really nothing to engage on, they wouldn't listen, et cetera, et cetera. And so given the spirit of the Neuhauser Lecture, you know, bridging policy and academics, I wonder what you would suggest to those of us in the China field who actually are talking uh, with Chinese, you know, not maybe at the highest level of government necessarily, but you know, much more individuals in our field, other academics, and really are doing these collaborations on the so-called boring uh, problems that you mentioned, you know, environment, health, aging, uh, transnational crime. There's a lot of that going on already among academics, but clearly we haven't bridged well with, you know, official policy. So. Just wanted some of your, your insights on that for what we could be doing more. I mean, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think I can pretend to give any advice about how you might influence the current administration. But, you know, in the future, certainly there will be avenues. There's avenues to, um, I think, uh, congressional members who care a lot about what's going on in their district. So any kind of, you know, story that that they could get a hold of and then and then use. I found them to be receptive to that. It has to be very micro, very local, and very applicable to their district. Um, and I think that um, in the same vein, kind of, we 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 need to get the population of the United States outside of Washington somehow engaged in you know what's going on in the world and our place in it and what they think we should be doing uh, you know in it and you know and how china fits into their worldview and do they know that for example we're working with china on disease prevention so that we don't get any more of these strains of flu coming over here whatever it is i mean the people you know just they don't really know what's going on. They hear strands of things that are mostly wrong. And so, you know, how to get some kind of factfulness injected into their um, understanding of what the U.S. and China are doing and have done together. I mean, somebody was telling us today that um, in, 
1979, of course, we reestablished diplomatic relations with uh, China, but in 1979 also the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And we had very robust cooperation with China, of course, in, in countering that aggression, in, in, I think, I mean, funneling weapons to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, the next year was going to be the first year because the Chinese took the seat at the UN and they were recognized by many countries. They were going to participate in the Olympics in Moscow in 1980, and then we boycotted it because of the Afghan invasion. And the Chinese didn't participate in their first Olympics, the PRC. First ever Olympic participation, we're so excited. They didn't participate because they were with us in protesting that. So if you think, I mean, there's so much there. It's, it's just been totally lost um, how much we've done together. And I think, you know, there's just so many stories that, that American people would find very compelling, but they, but they are too busy with their social media accounts or whatever they're doing. <laughs> and, you know, I live in Maine now, um, far from Washington, and people just don't even think about it. So it's important to get the conversation going among average Americans because that's how you get the pressure coming back to Washington on, on what people want to see and what they care about. Gentleman there. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm uh, Jed Schwartz. I'm a, I write in Somerville. And uh, I was re reading a, a book by, uh, called The Looting Machine by Tom Burgess, I think, which describes uh, 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 the Chinese selling garments in Nigeria at such low rate uh, prices that they essentially wiped out the, the local Nigerian garment industry. So my, my question is, uh, 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 is there a way of measuring uh, how much of Chinese exports are actually dumping uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, objectively measuring it uh, in, in, a, in a manner that would be le legally, le legally applicable, uh, le legally, you know, relevant? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, is... So those, those that, that dumping would be uh, accomplished through subsidizations of production in China. Uh, those subsidizations presumably involve uh, the, the accrual of internal Chinese debt, which uh, is generally acknowledged to be a major problem for them, but they could uh, pay it off or forgive it. Uh, we've been known to forgive debt within the United States. Uh, uh, is there anything we could do, uh, like before the WTO or other international legal organizations, to counteract such dumping? Uh, will they be able to get away with it? Uh, can we make an, an international case that they are, in effect, uh, outside of the Asian tigers and uh, Southeast Asian companies, uh, countries, that they, they're, in fact, devastating economies all over the world, including our own? Uh, in terms of, uh, not, not in terms of high-end corporate profits, but in terms of production within the United States, which uh, uh, some, some say that's not a problem, yeah. but if you've lost your job, and if you're, you know, and if you're not a, a recipient of corporate largesse, it, it is a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, um, 
No, absolutely we should be bringing an international case against China for dumping if they're dumping. And there are ways to figure out if they're dumping. Um, I mean, there are ways through the WTO, too, to address subsidies. The criticisms of the WTO are completely justified, in my view. I mean, they take too long to resolve these cases. I mean, the U.S. has domestic legislation because of this. We have our own laws that are on top of the WTO case, you know, bringing a case and that whole process to try to prevent um, um, the lapse in the length it takes to, to bring the case, to, to prevent injury to that industry while we, while we process the case, et cetera. But, but usually, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that when we did the Chinese WTO accession, we included all of these provisions about non-market economy, about dumping cases, about countervailing duties. Mark probably knows more about this than I do, so I shouldn't be talking so much about it. But in fact, you know, after China came into the WTO in 2001, we didn't bring hardly any cases. And um, why is that? That's a good question. We should have brought a lot more cases. That's my view. Um, at the time, we were bogged down with Afghanistan, the Iraq war. We were trying to mount an international coalition. We were doing a lot of other things. And so maybe because of, you know, there are a lot of things when you look at relations with another country, you've got to consider all these different angles, all these different aspects of things that you're dealing with. And maybe at that time, um, you know, they, they believed that they needed China's cooperation on countering terrorism more than they wanted to risk China being upset over us bringing a dumping case. I don't know. They did bring a few more dumping and countervailing duty cases, I think, as time went on. But the size of the problem at that point just overwhelmed, I think, the system. And so now we are faced with this situation where there's, you know, it's devastated manufacturing in a lot of places around the world. Um, I mean, whether it's because their debt is subsidizing their industry and therefore they're, um, you know, exporting below uh, cost of manufacturing or whether they just manufacture at super low prices because it's China and they have a lot of cheap labor and they, I mean, so there's a lot of questions there and I don't think there's one answer that I can give you because I'm not, you know, an expert on trade law. We have one right here. Um, but I think, um, you know, this is the problem that we're grappling with now is I, I talked about reforming the international system. I don't think the answer is to junk the international system. I don't, and, I, and I think China is, you know, certainly not a rule of law country, but its, its laws have evolved with our help over time. Most American companies that I talk to now say that they can get satisfactory court judgments in Chinese administrative courts now, which never used to be the case. So bottom line, there's a lot of problems. We tackle one problem, we get some progress, but then another problem comes up. And so what do you do? You keep tackling the problems. Is it... Is it satisfactory? Um, no, but I don't know any other way to do it in the current you know, international, globalized, capitalist market economy that we have. Lots of hands. Uh, that gentleman's next, and then the gentleman in the back, and then we, uh, there. And then we've got a, time for a couple more questions. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Han Dayuan uh, from uh, Renmin University of China Law Schools. In the, the uh, general speaking, the uh, China and the U.S. have the peacefully executed for 40 years. 
But um, the, now is the, uh, there have been the uh, difficult some uh, issues there between the two countries. So what do you think uh, is the most challenging issues between two countries now? And uh, from your experience, what do you think the solution is? Thank you. <laughs> so toughest question and how to solve it. <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I kind of in my talk went through what a lot of the problems are, and I do think that the security dilemma is probably the, um, the most dangerous problem. I think, you know, probably the, the biggest problem right now is, is technology and how to deal with that, because we haven't even really started talking about what what we should be doing about this area, and it, it, is, it is running way ahead of the ability of governments to keep up with it, and I think we're getting into some um, very tense and probably sort of counterproductive to long-term interests of both countries' territory now. Um, but I think the security side is going to be more difficult because um, just that's the nature of that kind of competition. Uh, what can we do about it? We have another expert in the room on um, what we should be doing about it. But I think um, basically there's two things. You can set up crisis uh, prevention and crisis management mechanisms to try to prevent escalation in case there's an accident. I said in my talk that I don't think there's going to be a military conflict between the U.S. and China, but there could very well be a military accident between the U.S. and China, and we've seen that in the past in a couple of uh, cases. And so what is important there is that we have a set of practices and principles and measures in place to prevent an accident from spiraling out of control. Um, but I think there are probably other things that need to be done in the military to military arms control, um, you know, reaching better mutual understandings and clearer lines about where the two sides are to prevent these kinds of mishaps from happening. So if I was going to pick one, I would pick that one and I would, I would set Bob Ross and his colleagues to work on it. <laughs> Gentlemen there, and then we'll take one more question, and then we'll have to stop, I'm afraid. Thanks so much um, for the wonderful and insightful friend, um, speech. Um, currently, I'm the student, undergrad student, major in economics, not here in Harvard, but in Northeastern and the school in Boston. I'm very curious about one topic you mentioned about ease of doing business. Um, as you described previously, you said the US firms, they have more satisfactory. And I do agree that there are a lot of um, space and possibility between cooperation between China and the US. And many things have worked. But that's one critical issue, which is a right relevant to our um, current debate about the joint ventures and also intellectual property transfer rights. Um, we see that there have been some changes, especially in the financial industry quite recently, that um, the majority rule has been, uh, has been the transition, has been removed. What sort of viewpoint about other industry, especially for, uh, for aerospace and also uh, nuclear planet and also other, um, which, for example, um, the trips? Um, those was deemed as strategic uh, industry policies, especially relevant China's 2025 manufacture. You mean on the part of the U.S. or on the part of China? On the part of the U.S., how could the U.S. Um, do 
uh, inference this because we see that not only China's, um, not only U.S. firms see a lot of is um, see a very hard time doing business in China, especially given the restriction of restriction um, about joint ventures. But at the same time, that we kind of take a tag and kind of give a retaliation that we trying to block a lot of M&A uh, accusation of a Chinese firm here in um, U.S. as well. I feel like right now the, the environment is not very friendly to each other. Uh, we see like, a huge decline of um, outflow investment from China. So what's a better way if we really try to change the situation and try to make an improvement and better of doing business for both countries and what you will have a positive implication for globally? Thank you. Well, I definitely think that we should try to um, pursue policies that will benefit both countries and global growth. So I'm, I'm all on board with that. I guess, um, so the question about, about restrictions on investment going into China, but also coming into the US, I mean, and, and Chinese investment into the US dropped dramatically last year, but my understanding is that was mainly because of restrictions on outbound um, investment flows from inside of China. So it's not really having to do with any restrictions that the U.S. was putting on, although we did have the um, enhancement of CFIUS under the FIRMA Act from Congress. I mean, it remains to be seen kind of how that, how that enhanced CFIUS uh, piece of legislation is going to really affect the reviews, the national security reviews of inbound investment from China. I mean, given the rhetoric from the administration, you would expect that it, it will have a, an, an effect, but we have to look at the cases and the statistics and the numbers to see what's actually happening. And I don't, I don't know that there's been enough evidence since that was passed to, to say that things have dramatically gotten worse. But I think that the investment inbound to the US picture got worse last year because of something that happened in China, not here. Um, on, the, on the US investment to China, um, you know, they just came out with the US, uh, with the AmCham Beijing annual survey of its members. 70% of US companies in China are still making money. Um, something like that percentage are going to continue with their um, uh, work in China. Um, about a third of the companies are going to increase their investment in China. About a third are going to stay where they are, basically, and a third are considering maybe leaving and diversifying their supply chain elsewhere. So the picture um, doesn't seem to be dramatically uh, worse to me on the U.S. investment going into China, but some companies are certainly hedging and sitting on the fence until they see the outcome of this trade war. I would say on the financial, you said lifting the caps on, on um, equity firms. I mean, most U.S. equity firms that want to go into China want 100% ownership. So what's happened is not helping them because they don't want to I mean, they have to make investment decisions based on 100% wholly owned um, structure. And so, I mean, it's good that, and it'll help some people, presumably, but most of the US companies that were interested in that are, are, are not so satisfied with that, if that answers the question that I understood. Okay, great. Did it take one more? Oh, uh, sure. Are there more questions? Oh, there are lots more, but <laughs> oh I, I, we have to stop eventually. <laughs> Thank you for your presentation, Susan. I'm Brenda Connors. I'm a professor at the Naval War College, and my question is about leadership and decision-making. And from your experiences, can you comment on the degree of impact that the top 
leader in China, say you've known maybe one, two, or even three of these folks, if you've observed them up closely. And um, what type of direct, if you could describe it, impact are they having on both policy and the practical aspects of governance? And how is our U.S. leadership, I know we just saw some personal one-on-one -on -one in Hanoi, but how would you comment on America's leaders relative to this type of dynamic interaction or not? That's a great question. So my experience with this is that people tend to wildly overestimate the degree to which top-level leaders in any country, but especially China and especially the United States, are involved in you know, any number of issues or decisions. I mean, um, you know, Xi Jinping obviously spends most of his time focused on his domestic political situation. And that's true for any Chinese leader, but it's particularly true uh, for him and also, of course, the, the economy, because that's related to the domestic political situation. Um, and you know, I don't think that Xi Jinping spends hardly any time on foreign policy, except that he has to make these trips, that he goes on these foreign trips. And so then he has to prepare for those foreign trips and get briefed up and figure out what the issues are and figure out what he's going to do there. And that is why summitry is so important, because most leaders don't think about foreign policy. They think about what you know, they need to do to get reelected, or they need to do to satisfy their domestic constituency. Um, and so meetings and engagements are very important, because that's where you get the attention of the leader on these issues and get decisions, because it's an action-forcing event. So Xi Jinping told, um, I think it was President Obama, that um, the only country that he spends any time thinking about is the United States. He doesn't, he doesn't do any other. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's an exaggeration. But you know, in his busy day, you know, he might look at a paper on, the, on something to do with the United States, and probably not many other papers on any other foreign issues. So um, I think it's very good for all of us to keep this in mind, because we have a tendency to say, oh, Xi Jinping did that. Oh, Xi Jinping did that. Oh, Xi Jinping must have known about the camps in Xinjiang and how bad they were going to be. I mean, probably not, actually. I mean, now he knows. But um, so and you know, everyone in here has some familiarity, I assume, with China and the way things happen in China's regions that are far away from Beijing um, and the amount of authority that local leaders have to resolve problems or try out new things, et cetera. So um, you know, it's, and this always happens when some, whenever anybody is arrested in China. Oh, they must have had the permission of Xi Jinping to arrest that person. You know, probably not. Um, so anyway, I mean, in some cases, obviously, yes. But he doesn't like go down lists of people who are going to be arrested that day and check, <laughs> make check marks, you know? So they make a lot of mistakes. That's what I'm saying. And, 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 he, and, it's, and it's, he's, he's not a details guy, I have to say, too, at all. And neither is our guy, by the way. <laughs> so. You know, and, and I'm sure Kim Jong Un is not really either that much of it. He's mostly focused on his domestic politics too. So, so these conversations, you know, people like to talk in some of the books that get written about, you know, oh, you know, did so and so raise this issue in the meeting? 
you know, no. <laughs> the issue was not raised in that meeting. I mean, 95% of the time, I would bet you I would be right. Because they don't talk about small, you know, specific issues. It's very high level, um, you know, very high level stuff. <laughs> if, I had, if I had Kim Jong-un on my borders, I'd probably read the, I'd be, I'd read the DPRK papers daily. But anyways, um, that's actually a great question to end on because it, it really draws together your uh, personal experience mm -hmm. uh, in the trenches, as it were, uh, in U.S.-China relations for almost three decades with the, the, the sort of wide overview that you've been developing and that you're sharing with us today. Uh, thank you so much for just a wonderful presentation. It is, it's, a, it's a mark, obviously, of a good discussion that there were more hands up at the end of the discussion than there were at the beginning. Um, I would invite you now to join us uh, in the uh, common room for uh, reception. We can continue the conversation there. Uh, thank you to Susan. Thank you also, of course, to uh, the Newhouser family for their support of the lecture series. Thank you.